me, um, let me do the first thing that I have to do every single time I go somewhere new and address what mother would call their son Smokey. And so I've been smoking my entire life. My mom really didn't even give me that name. Uh, when I was born, they didn't have a name for me. And so my grandfather, who, in his genius, nicknamed my older brother Stoney after one of his rodeo partners that had just passed away. And so my brother is Stoney. And then I was born four years later. Instead of baby blue eyes, I had really light gray eyes. And they said, hey, let's call him Smokey, Stoney and Smokey. And so my whole life, everyone asked, were, were your parents like hippies? And were they, did they really dive off? And I said, I don't think so. But my grandfather was very unique and odd. And so um, I'm really excited to be with you. Uh, my wife and I are here. We flew in yesterday. My wife and I uh, are high school sweethearts. We started dating um, our senior year in high school. Uh, she wanted to date me our freshman year, but I didn't let her. And I'm just joking. I chased her like crazy. And so we have four awesome kiddos. Our oldest just turned 16. We have a daughter that's a boy, a daughter that's four, 14, a son that's 12, and another son that's 10. And so they are uh, with grandparents this weekend. And so we're able to, to be here and enjoy time with you. And so let me dive into where we are today. We have this question that's before us, who is Jesus? Uh, Jesus Christ is really the, the most sought after human in history. And you're talking about the, the more literature has been written on Jesus than virtually all other humanity combined. More songs have been written and sung to Jesus than, than every other love song combined. And when we talk about who he is, and he's the most discussed person, he's he's influential in all of life, and, and in every category of life, there's this element of who is Jesus. Here's the, the tip of the tongue. Over 90% of all countries on the planet celebrate Christmas, and in Christ is in the name Christmas. And so we have this understanding of who he is, and it's still yet this perpetual question, who is Jesus? Who is the person? Who is the character? Who Who is Jesus, the one that can do all these great things that we see throughout Scripture? Who is this person that is that his presence brings about a different mentality? Even in his time, some thought he was brilliant. Some thought he was insane. Some celebrated him as a prophet. Some shamed him as a blasphemer. Some thought he was just crazy and off his rocker. As we think about who Christ is, who's the one that went to the cross? Who's the one that that was buried for my sin and yours? Who's the one that conquered the grave? Who's the one that's seated at the right hand of God? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says this. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Speaking of Jesus. He's the exact imprint and representation of the divine nature of God. Of who he is. Jesus' own words in John chapter 14, verse 9, he says, If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Paul later in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. And I know we, we, we think through this concept, He's the exact representation, He's the image of the invisible God. In my mind, because it's very simple and, and, and comes to this mentality of, it's kind of like a photograph where he has this this picture of Jesus and, and picture of God, and that he's kind of the representation of God, and it kind of looks like God, and kind of fits in that category, but it's completely wrong and void of the, the true meaning of what it is that Jesus is the exact representation of God. So maybe think outside of the, the context of a photograph or a painting, 
and maybe go into the sun that is covered by the clouds this morning. Like when we arrived, we've been in, in, in Oklahoma, we've been in rain and the threat of snow. My kids were so bummed. We're supposed to have three to six inches of snow this last week and it just rained. And so we've been in clouds. And so when we, when we showed up yesterday, what does every person that comes to California, Southern California, need to go do right when they get into their rental car? Find somewhere to buy a pair of sunglasses. And so in that moment, we're driving and I am squinting. I'm like, why is it so bright? I've seen the sun before. But the rays that are coming off are radiating the glory of the sun. Those rays, those lights, that heat is not something other than the sun. It's the glory of the sun. It's radiating that glory from the sun to us that we can experience it. And so that starts to gravitate to the picture that we see of Jesus Christ. He's not something other than God trying to represent God. He is God radiating his glory to us that we can see Christ. That we can see that the God of creation is amongst us. And this is what has brought so much confusion to the world. But here's what we do with Christ at times. We take him into consideration and we think of him as something great and grand. This this great figure in in, in the history. And and we think that is wonderful. And we go, but I don't quite get it. So I'm going to put him on this shelf of curiosity. I'm going to put him up here and think, well, I'll get to that when I get to that. And I'll think about it when I can. But right now, I've got to get on life. I've got to get on kind of walking through every day. And I've got kids. I've got I've got job. I've got a responsibility. I've got classes. I've got whatever it is. And we just kind of put Christ up here on this this shelf of curiosity. Pretty neat. Pretty intriguing. But we put him here. But the problem is Jesus. He's the problem. Because he says... I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That's a problem. Because if if Jesus is just something of curiosity and we can put him on the shelf, then that statement doesn't really have much meaning. But that statement says, I can't get to God except through Jesus. Jesus' own words later on talks about that all of humanity is going to die. And where we spend our eternity depends on how we consider and understand and accept the claims of Jesus Christ. So he moves from the the shelf of curiosity into a critical criteria that we must address on a daily basis. Who is Jesus? And what in the world am I going to do with him? If I have to follow and follow after him, he's the only one that throughout scripture says he is the gift give. The gift to give us forgiveness. If we accept him, if we repent of our sins, that he has access to heaven. That he has our eternal hope. He has the blessings that are to come. And so now we we have to do something with him. Again, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one's going to come to me except through Christ. So the Bible is true. These are his words. Uh, You start to study scripture. You start to dive into the depths of it. And what you understand is it's not just true. It's actually the foundation, the bedrock of all truth that we have in our civilization. 
It's not just a a curiosity. It's not just a wise, pithy statement. It's the truth in which we hold all of truth in context to. And so we have the truth, and the Bible is true, and you can examine it in different ways. I mean, there's a number of different ways you can examine the validity of Scripture. And one would just be simple experiences. Our human experiences, we, we experience things differently. And so you can tell whether or not someone across the restaurant has taken a bite of something really, really hot just by watching them, can't you? You can experience that because of there's a visual representation of what took place in that moment. Whether it was hot to the taste of just putting in or it was super spicy and they start to sweat. You can experience, you can see the validity of scripture through the experience of those that are in it. There's so many eyewitnesses that watch them. There's historians that could have countered all the statements that we've seen, whether it was the prophets or the disciples, that they were willing to give their life for this truth, this validity of seeing Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Experiences are great, but it's not the only way to check the validity of Scripture. You can also look at science. Scripture is very clear when it talks about science, when it talks about why it does things. Throughout the Old Testament, before telescopes was even a thing in existence, Scripture makes it clear that the, the world in which we live was a sphere, hanging in the balance of space, rotating on its axis. These are all things that are described throughout Scripture. That our creation story that we see in Genesis is the only creation story that even comes close to making sense to our human minds. We, we see so many scientists and so many different people spending, I mean, countless hours and millions and millions of dollars trying to prove theories and they don't even have a clue what they're coming up with and all they do is just add time and time and time and think that we would be ignorant enough to just accept that we just add enough time to something that just has to make sense. But when he speaks everything, God, ex nihilo, out of nothing, and we have creation, it makes sense. Then you see that it, it starts to define how the world works. So we can look at it scientifically. We can look at it also through the miracles. If God is God and Jesus is a representation of God, you would, you would assume he can do some miracles. I mean, so often today what many have tried to negate the claims of scriptures because of miracles. But if, if the miracles were removed, that would be the very argument that they would use against Scripture. Well, if he's God, shouldn't there be miracles in there? Shouldn't there be something that, that shows his power over everything in history? And so we see the miracles, and, and we see the lame healed, we see the blind have sight, we see that Christ raises them from the dead at times. And so we have miracles, and you see those over and over again in the witnesses that watch them. I love to think about prophecies. The, my children and I, we were having a conversation. We were talking, getting ready for the Christmas season and, and we're going through this, this candle thing that we have and we light all the different candles each Sunday leading up to Christmas and, and we're talking about the prophecy candle and one of my children said, like, what's, what's the big deal about prophecy? How does, how does that connect to everything? And so I brought it back to sports. We enjoy sports. We have that in our background and they like to play. And I started talking about Babe Ruth. Well, my kids know nothing of who Babe Ruth is, but Babe Ruth was a really good baseball player. And everyone has heard the name Babe Ruth or a candy bar. Whichever one you prefer, go for them both. But why did Babe Ruth stand the test of time? How has he endured all the other great baseball players? It's because he was a prophet. When, when Babe Ruth stood at home plate in a game and, and he's pointing 
to the center field. And he is prophesying that he is about to hit a ball over the center field. And he actually does that. That prophecy seals him in the history books as something great, even though his records have been beaten. Because he had this mentality of he, he could point and he could say what was going to happen and it came to pass. And that's just baseball. When you look at the hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that are de- depicted about Jesus, and he fulfills every single one of them, it validates the claims of Scripture. But beyond Christ, or beyond just the, the evidence, the miracles, the science, nothing speaks of the validity more than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself is not a history, a person in history that you could ever manifest in your own strength. Who Jesus is, is, is not something that we can, we can mass produce and we could have come up with in our own understanding. Actually what, what it takes place is Jesus' life validates everything. If Jesus is the Son of God, you would think he would enter into this world miraculously through a, a virgin birth. That prophecy telling that he was going to come from Bethlehem, he was going to come out of Egypt, he was going to do all these things. And there's no committee of people that would have ever been able to produce Jesus. That he would be able to surpass all human expectations. So we look at his life. And we look at his statements. And we look at what people said about him. And we look at all the different things about him. So here's what we see. He says, taste. Psalm 34, verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Here's what I love about Christianity. What I love about my faith in Christ. He's the only only one in history who says you taste and see that God is good. You ask questions. You seek for the Lord. You pursue a relationship with him. It's not what your family lineage has to offer. It's not what your background has to offer. It's not about anything other than you yourself seeing, tasting, and experiencing the goodness of God for your own rights. For your own understanding. I don't have faith in Jesus because of my family background. My family background is all sorts of messed up. I don't have faith in Jesus because of my grandmother. I don't have faith in in Jesus because I was born in America. I have faith in Jesus because I've seen and I've tasted and I've experienced his goodness. So he says, ask questions. When we look at Jesus, we, we see his, his story is laid out in the Gospels. So today we're going to dive into really two verses, mainly just one, in John chapter 8. So if you find your way to John chapter 8, I'm going to read some other verses throughout. But in John chapter 8, it's kind of this, this peak of what's about to take place in Jesus' life. He is having confrontation after confrontation with the, the Jewish leaders. See, when you read the Gospel of John... He says in John chapter 20, verse 31, the whole point and purpose of why he even gave us the gospel. John writes and he says, but I write these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, John writes the gospel of John that you and I would believe, not intellectually believe, not not just experientially believe, but that we would believe and embrace the truth claims of who Jesus is. He writes so that you would, you would have that opportunity to believe that you would have hope. So here's what takes place in John chapter 8. They're having this conversation of Abraham. All of Israel is born out of Abraham. If you go all the way back to Genesis, 
And you have this story where, where God calls Abram out of his homeland and he follows after God and he has this covenant with God and he gets a new name. And out of that, his wife miraculously gives birth to a son, Isaac. And through that lineage, all Jewish history comes back to Abraham. And Jesus is standing there and he's having this conversation with them in John chapter 8, verse 58. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and he went out from the temple. See, here's what's taking place with the Jewish mentality. And I say that because what they were struggling with in reality is what you and I struggle with on every day, on a daily basis. They were struggling with this concept of this character of Jesus. He was not on the shelf of curiosity. He was on the shelf of critical thinking and how do I handle Jesus? And so what the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees and Sadducees and the high priests and everything, what they're struggling with is good works mentality. I'm good. Listen, I, I go to church, I, I have a family, I work, I do all these good things. I'm, I'm, I'm not near as bad as, as well, we all know who they are. We, I'm not near as bad as them, or I'm not near as bad as that group. I'm, I'm, I'm good. We all have family members that are crazy. I'm, I'm not, I'm not near as bad as my brother. Alright, he's, he's crazy. And so we put ourselves in this category like, you know what? If I'll do good things, Kind of behave and, and in moderations, I'm, I'm pretty good. My own self effort. And I believe that I can earn my way to God's presence. I spent 20 some, some odd days in India and we're training pastors. We're going through all this and in every business that we went into, you would, you would see an idol above the door jam and at the, at the base, at the foot, you would see some kind of produce. It was usually a slice of a lemon or a lime. And every day a business owner would come in and they would sacrifice to that God and they would leave that to bless their business, that they could earn his favor. Because all of human history, we, we know what evil is. And this is another one of the validations I believe in God because I have seen and experienced evil in my life. And the only reason evil exists is because there's a good, good God who will conquer it one day. And so I know that there's evil. And I know that in my brain, I, I try to, I try to rationalize that I'm not evil. I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not evil. So I feel like I can earn my way up. But here's the reality is, I'm much more closely aligned to the most evil of humanity than I am the holiness of God. My life mirrors and looks much more similar to those of the, the Stalins and the Hitlers of the world than they do the holiness of Jesus Christ who is set apart. And so I struggle just like the Jewish leaders, like everybody else in this world, that I'm pretty good. And I don't really need to repent of my sins. I really, I really don't need to die daily to the, the selfish impulses of my heart. And so I think I can work my way to God. And this is the battle that is raging before them. And then Jesus, over 2,100 years later, makes this statement that truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. For us, in our modern day vernacular, that kind of loses some of its understanding. 
Uh, my 12-year-old son came up to me last week as I'm preparing for this sermon. I thought how ironic that God uses a 12-year-old to teach me so many great lessons. And so he's in the middle. We've, we teach them different languages. So he was learning Latin last year, and this year he's trying to learn Spanish. And so he comes up to me and says, Hey, Dad, did you know that in America we say, in, in our English, we'll say, I am 12 years old. I said, Yep, thanks for that information. I knew that one already. He said, But in the Spanish culture, they say, I have 12 years. I said, man, we're pretty arrogant, aren't we? In this mentality that I am, I have, I get, and we have this possession of. And so that's where this really takes place for me. And it started to come clear is Jesus' statement is that possession, that, that, that active voice that I am. He says, before Abraham, I am. Meaning, there is this aspect of eternity wrapped in this statement. Before Abraham, I am. During Abraham, I am. After Abraham, I am, was the statement he's saying. I've existed beyond time. The psalmist even carries this idea in Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth, and the world formed everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Jesus tells this group of of leaders, in this one statement, I am. I am God. I am Yahweh. The the fabric of Judaism is there's one God and one God alone. This goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 3 when when God is speaking to Moses to go back to Egypt and tell the Israelites that God has heard their cry for 400 years, that he is coming to deliver them. And Moses says, hey, Who do I tell them you are? Like you've been silent for 400 years. I kind of heard of you in the past, but I don't even know your name. Who do I go tell them is speaking and he's going to come and deliver them. And God says, I am who I am. I am. I am Yahweh. It's that tetragrammaton, that, that, that Hebrew wording that they don't even speak. What we would say, Yahweh. It is this understanding that, that it's too perfect, too pure, too holy to even utter out of my lips. Is who's going to come and speak to you? Who's going to deliver you? Who's going to remove you from slavery? And they're struggling with it all. And later on in Exodus chapter 3 verse 11, he says, who am I? Moses says, who am I that I'm going to go and communicate on your behalf? And here's that I am statement that really resonates with Jesus in John chapter 8 that really hit the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders God spoke to Moses and said, I will be with you. I am is eternal, but I am is also present with you right now. To understand Jesus is to understand the statement I am is to understand that in him in the context of redemptive history. Jesus isn't just a good teacher that we can just put on that shelf again of curiosity. He's not just something that we say and kind of put and placate and have off at an arm's distance. He is all wrapped up in redemptive history, in our redemption from the world in which we live so that we can spend eternity with him. This name I am, this name Yahweh that they, is, they will not even speak represents the eternal aspect of God, the permanent presence of him. And he's also acting as a rescuer of his people. And then along comes Jesus saying that's who he is. Now, in this time frame, there's lots of crazy people. Lots of crazy people. 
Today, there's lots of crazy people. Part of my role that I've served the last couple of eight years, and, um, and it's just a challenging one, is also a chaplain for our local police department. So when there's really, really hard situations, when they have to do death notifications, I, I get to go into those scenarios and get to minister to families when they're at the lowest part of their life. Also, when there's these really tra- challenging situations where, where people are just so strung out on different things, like they... They don't know how to handle them. And so they'll call the pastor and I get to go and, and minister to people. And you know how many Jesuses I've ministered to in the last eight years? Do you know how many gods there are out there that claim to be deity when they're strung out on everything? It's the same thing they had here. There's tons of people that claim to be God. There was tons of people that claim to be the Messiah. There was tons of people, but this one, this one was different. The New Testament says the words he had spoken carried such meaning and authority that they had never heard anything like it. They've never experienced anything like him before. So now they want to stone him and do away with Jesus because, because what they understood was somebody has to die. I know we kind of, we kind of sweep the Jewish leaders as ignorant at times. Like they were just, they're just not very educated. The more and more I've spent time in John's gospel, what I've understood is they, they got the picture very clearly. They were very, very accurate. When you deal with Jesus, somebody always has to die. Either I die to myself and surrender to him as Lord, or he dies and I claim to be deity and I can reign over my own life. And that's what they came to this conclusion. Either he's Lord or I'm going to continue to be Lord of my own life. And they handled him in, in a context that was actually accurate, not proper, but accurate. And so we can't just throw Jesus to the wind and say, I don't get him. Jesus doesn't leave the statement of I am just here. Throughout the gospel of John, he has half a dozen or more of these I am statements. In John chapter six, he says, I am the bread of life. Meaning I'm the source of all spiritual life. It's not going to come through anything else in this world. It's not going to come through a relationship. It's not going to come through a career. It's not going to come through finances. It's not going to come through any other deity. That's not the spiritual aspect that we have. It only comes through Jesus Christ that has any value. John chapter 8, we see this, that I am. But he also says, I am the light of the world. Meaning that this world is dark. But yet, only in Christ do we have life. Do we have light? Do we have hope? John chapter 8, he says, I'm the door of the sheep. Means I am the way to God's presence. Later in John chapter 10, he says, not only the door, I'm the, I'm the good shepherd. You want to have access to God? You have to have a shepherd who guides you and who takes you to where he is. He says, I am that good shepherd. In John chapter 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Meaning I have the power over death. He says in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 15, I am the true vine. The source of all and only spiritual productive life is when we're connected to the vine. See, Jesus isn't just this irritation. He's not just this blister that is going to take care of itself in time. Jesus really right here, it's this matter of, of who he says he is. And he proves it over and over again. What's his first miracle? It's at a wedding. It's at a feast. And he turns water into wine. 
all to fulfill the promise and prophecy of Jacob blessing Joseph and Joseph's sons. And there's so much rich history in that, in just that one miracle that we get experience in heaven. He calms the sea with just his voice. He has power over nature and over the animal kingdom. He can make fish come out from anywhere he wants. He has the power to heal the lame and give sight to the blind, to feed thousands. He has this power over demons. He has power to raise those who have passed, who have died. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 33, it says, Nothing, Never has anything like him, like Jesus, ever been seen in Israel. And he has this power. He has power to, to conquer grave. And again, he goes back to this I am statement is only understood and seen in the context of the redemptive history in the person of who Jesus is. John chapter 11, he's telling them that he is this body that he lives in, This, and he's speaking of his body, but he uses that word temple, will be destroyed and raised in three days. And they didn't get it. So he proves how he has power over death. And he goes to his friend Lazarus, who has passed away. He knew that he had passed away. He knew that he was dead. And yet, he waited longer. John chapter 11, verse 38 and following. And Jesus, deeply moved, he came to the tomb. And it was the cave and a stone laid against it. And he said, Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha said, whoa! There's a dead man inside. And he's going to stink really, really bad. Don't pull this away. And it's going to be embarrassing. It's going to be shame on the family. And Jesus said to her, listen... Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? I challenge you to look at that statement. You would see the glory of God. It is that Jesus is the radiance of God. He's not something other than God representing God. He is God representing God. And in this glory is God. This glory belongs to God. It's his and his. You're going to see this. So he took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said to his father, I thank you that you have heard me. Now listen, I knew that you have always heard me. Why? Because you are, I am. You are always present with me. You're always with me. You're always here in that redemptive story. I knew that you've always heard me, but I said this on account of these people standing around me, that you may, be, that they would believe that you have sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. He said as John chapter 5, that one day he's going to raise everybody just like he did Lazarus. And we're going to be raised and have to deal with how we handled the person of Jesus. The statements of I am. Before Abraham was, I am. How do we, how do we handle that? How do we deal with that on a regular basis? He's the son of man. He has the power over death. He has the power to forgive our sins. He has the power to conquer the grave. He has the power because he is the resurrection and the life. He's not just a figurehead that we can kind of placate and take care of. We, we don't patronize the aspect of who God is. So I love how the Jews handled this situation. They understood it very well. Either he dies or I die. Either he dies and I continue to pretend to be my own deity. I pretend that I can work and I can earn, I can strive and I can do all these things in my own strength. Or 
I have to die to myself. I have to surrender my rights. I have to come underneath His Lordship and surrender every aspect of my life. And it looks completely different when I follow Christ. So we all stand at that crossroads. We all stand at this place. We, we either call Him a blasphemer or we call Him God. There's not a middle ground of just leaving Jesus on the curiosity shelf. It's either I surrender all of my life or I have surrendered zero of my life to Him. Because He says, I am. And that statement changes everything about it. And it's a critical one that we must deal with. We must wrestle with. I remember, I was 17 years old. I had played Christianity for a long time. My parents divorced when I was four or five years old. My dad remarried. We went to a church and, and the lady he married was playing the piano and we were going to join the church. And we went down. They said, do you want to join the church? I said, I don't know. I'm with the big guy. I'm just following dad. Wherever he goes, we're going. So, all right, you're going to get baptized. Awesome. Memorize Matthew 5, 44. Blessed are those who persecute and despitefully use you. I was saved. I was good. I was dunked. That was my salvation. Well, my mom was really mad. So they went to a, she was going to a different church. So I went there and she wanted me to be baptized in that church. They said, you saved? I said, I don't know. I know Matthew 5, 44. They said, okay, you're good. Dunked. So I was dunked again. My dad divorced. He remarried. We moved to Beggs. The greatest blessing of my life. I met my wife there. But other than that, we joined the church. It was a different denomination. They said, you saved? I don't know. I know Matthew 5, 44. They said, all right, dunked. So I've been dunked. I don't have to take a bath the rest of my life. I'm good. I'm a junior in high school. I played the Christian game. I was the president of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, but I had no salvation. I rededicated my life that summer at church camp, but no salvation. This family that loved on me and cared for me, and they started to ask, who is Jesus to you? There's a group of us, and the question started being asked, and we had this dialogue about 7, 8 o'clock at night. And at 5 o'clock in the morning, I finally surrendered my life to Christ. They dialogued with me all night long. And then for the very first time, I gave my life to Christ. And I realized, He's God, and I'm not. My God was football, and it wasn't going to last forever. And I gave my life to Christ. And then, for the very first time, I was truly baptized. But there was a day that I realized I had to die in order to have the I am present in every bit of my life. There has to be a day. And then since that day, I've not done it well, haven't done it perfectly. But every day is a death. It's a choice. It's not a new salvation. It's a choice. I'm going to surrender whatever he's asked me to do. I thought I wanted to coach college football. After a couple of years of playing college football, I said, I don't want to coach this. I'll just finish, but I'm not going to coach. I'll have a business. And God said, I want you to walk away and go to the ministry. I don't like, I don't like pastors. They're weird and goofy. He said, and you fit the category very well. I want you to move and I want you to go here. Okay. I want you to do this. Okay. Because I'm not God and it's not my life. It's his. I'm going to surrender every day. And that's what we get to do when we follow after Christ. You've got to move him off the, off the shelf of curiosity. You've got to move him into the critical criteria that you have to wrestle with daily. And will I surrender 
in this moment, in this conversation, in this relationship, to the I am. Father, I thank you so much that you are a God who loves us, who cares for us, who ministers to us, who is always present, and you never leave us. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to just truly seek after you. Seek after you every single moment because you are ever-present with us in each and every moment. So, Father, I pray that we would see you anew and we would surrender everything over to you. It's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.